your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 will be our text for this morning. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find our passage on page 1026. If you've been with us over the past number of weeks, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. So it may sound a little odd to hear, turn to Matthew. But it's not odd to go to Matthew chapter 1 on Christmas Day, right? Because this is where Matthew's recounting of the Christmas story begins. As I was anticipating us being together on this Christmas Day and us having been working our way through Leviticus... I had kind of slated today to, for the sermon title to be a Levitical Christmas. And with the idea of looking at some themes from Leviticus as they show up in the Christmas story, both in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's. So for example, if you think about Luke's gospel, how does that gospel open up with its story? It opens up with the will-be father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, offering incense in the temple on the altar of incense. There's Leviticus for you. And the angel of the Lord shows up, scares him to death. And you know the story from there. Later in Luke's gospel, midway through chapter 2, Chapter 2, verses 22 and following. What do we have happening there? The Lord Jesus has been born, and in keeping with the Levitical requirements, his parents take him to be dedicated and to offer the required offering of purification. That was to be offered when a woman gave birth, in keeping with the requirements of the law. But this morning, we're going to take a bit of a different track. But as we'll see, this actually is closely tied to what we've been seeing in Leviticus, and especially what we have been seeing over the past two weeks. But even if you haven't been with us then, I pray that the Lord will use our observations from Matthew's gospel to shape us all. Follow along as I read Matthew 1 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As we think about what the Apostle Matthew reports, records for us here, 
my prayer this morning is that as we meditate on this text, that we would rejoice in the gift of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. That's the goal of our time together this morning. And to that end, I want us to observe three things in light of this passage. So if you're taking notes, these, these will be the three points for our outline. The first one, God. God. The second, with. With. Anybody willing to guess what the third is? Us. God with us. These are in Important words. Important words in the declaration here. Important words for us to hear, to help us to rejoice in the gift of Jesus as Emmanuel. So first, let's think about that word God there in the end of verse 23. Now, as we enter into thinking about what Matthew means and what he's pointing us to when he refers to God here, we need to pause and think just briefly about this name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Many of you, if not all of you, know that the Bible was originally written in three different languages, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek, depending on where you're at in the scriptures. And so our English translations are translations from those three languages. Well, when a translator is translating a, a foreign language, there are choices that have to be made. And sometimes the choice that is made is to find a word in the what's called the receptor language for us in English that conveys the same idea as was conveyed in the original language. So for example, for example, we have here the word God. Well, the Greek word standing behind that is the Greek word theos. If we went back to the Hebrew, that the basic form of God in Hebrew is El. And there are variations of this. But when a translator comes often to one of these words or variations of it, it'll, it'll show up as God. Because we have a word in the English language to convey the idea of God. But there are other kinds of words that occur in a language or phrases that don't have an exact correspondence. And so instead of translating into a word in the, the language that's being translated, what happens is there is what occurs or what's called transliteration. Transliteration. So it's just taking that original word and using the letters that are familiar to the reader and turning that word into really a new word in the receptor language. So for example, our word Hanukkah, that is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word Hanukkah. If you are interested in studying languages, 
you may twitch a little bit at this next one, but bear, bear with me. You know the, the English word dachshund? You know what it refers to? The little dog, right? The little wiener dog. That word is actually a transliteration from the German. Two words. Dachs, hund. Dachs, hund. Slam together, dachshund. You know what dox is? Badger. Hunt, hound. What was a dachshund? A badger hound. The same idea is happening here with this word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is really a transliteration of three Hebrew words. And if you wanted to break it up, you could break it up in this way. If you're taking notes, you could put dashes in this, in this way. You see there in verse 23, the word Emmanuel. The first word is the word im. So you could put a dash between the two ms. And then the, it's a combination of two words. Or in the Hebrew, it's two words put together, im and manu. And then the third word is l. So you have im Manu L. The first word that we're going to talk about is the last word, L, God. What does Matthew mean when he writes about God? A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, begins that book in saying this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it is important that we have a proper view of who God is. And it is important that we have a proper understanding of who Matthew is pointing us to when he refers to God here, God with us. Well, who is this God? This God is the powerful God, the ruling, the reigning God. One of the common names for God in the Old Testament tied to this word, this Hebrew word El, is Elohim. It's the name for God, the word for God that is used throughout Genesis 1 to describe, to identify God as the one who authoritatively spoke creation into existence. And creation displays the manifold power of God. And Matthew, as he writes here about God, has in part the powerful, ruling, reigning God in mind. For example, we see in Matthew 6, 9, how does Jesus teach his disciples to begin their praying? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. As Jesus, and as Matthew repeats and records Jesus' words, as Jesus points his disciples to our Father who is in heaven, where is he? He is in heaven. That is, he is the one who is ruling authoritatively over all things. Moreover, what do we read in Matthew 6, 24 and following? We read about God's authoritative, powerful 
perfect care of all creation. As Jesus describes God's feeding of the birds, the clothing of the lilies, his provision for the needs of his people as he rules over creation. This powerful reign of God was on full display, was on display, was on display in the ministry of Jesus, was it not? As he went around casting out demons, as he declared to the the stormy seas, peace, be still, as he raised a widow's son from the dead, as a woman was healed just by touching the garment of Jesus, as he cleansed the leper, as he fed the 5,000, over and over and over, the authority of God over creation was on display in the ministry of Jesus. This is the one who is God with us. But he is not just the powerful reigning God. He is the promise-keeping God. He is the God who makes promises and keeps his promises. And this is an important emphasis for Matthew as he writes primarily for a Jewish audience, wanting them to understand that what has happened in the coming and life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus has come in order to fulfill God's promises to his people. We see it here as the... As Matthew writes in verse 22, some debate whether the angel actually said this or this is Matthew's expression, explanation. It doesn't matter. Matthew is conveying this to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All of this took place. Why? Why did this miraculous conception take place? It it took place because to, excuse me, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And repeatedly in his Christmas narrative, Matthew will come back to this phrase, this happened to fulfill what had been promised. God is the promise-keeping God. But not only is he the powerful God, Not only is he the promise-keeping God, but he is also the pardoning God. He is the pardoning God, that is, the God who forgives sins. We see this in a variety of ways in Matthew's Gospel. Go back again in your mind to that model prayer where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And what does he teach them to pray? To God, who is in heaven, forgive us our debts. But also remember that story of the paralytic brought down from the roof by his four friends. Do you remember what Jesus said to that paralytic? Initially, he didn't say, rise, take up your mat and go. Initially, he looked at him and said, what? Your sins are forgiven. And this was scandalous. Why was it scandalous? The scribes, Matthew records, assert that Jesus is blaspheming. Mark, in his gospel, provides even more insight. Why did they say that Jesus was blaspheming? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? God is the forgiving 
God, of the pardoning God. Think about that picture in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant who has been forgiven an immeasurable debt by his master. Who does that master represent? He represents our God who forgives sin. But even here in Matthew chapter 1, we see the promise of God's pardon for sin anticipated, don't we? It's anticipated in the name that Joseph is to give this child. Notice verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who is this God who is with us in this child, he is the powerful God. He is the promise-keeping God. He is the pardoning God. We could go on and speak about his compassion as it shows up on display in the life of Jesus. But the point here is that this is God who is with. God who is with. With. Now, going back to that word, Emmanuel, we just talked about the end of that word, El, God. Now we're going all the way back to the beginning of that word, the M, the first, the I and the first M. El is the God who rules and reigns over all things. That points to his, what's referred to as his transcendence. He's above and over everything. Here, with the M signaling with, there is an emphasis on his presence. His presence. But not his presence just in the reality that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is nowhere that we can go and escape the presence of God. That is true. But the emphasis here on God being present or with is more localized. In a special way, he is present. This is the fancy term, if you're you're interested in that, is his eminence. He's transcendent, he rules over all things, but he is also a personal, present God who is eminent with us. This presence of God, if we hearken back to what we have seen in the past couple of weeks in Leviticus, this presence of God is a glorious and a frightening thing. A glorious and a frightening thing. Think about just the end of Leviticus 9 and the beginning of 10. In a glorious way, God's presence shows up in fire coming out of the tabernacle to consume the offerings that had been offered. And the people fall down in worship, rejoicing that the presence of God has shown up and their sacrifices have been accepted. But just three or four verses later, the frightening presence of God shows up as two of Aaron's sons offer fire before the Lord that they had not been commanded to offer. And what happened? In an instant, 
They were consumed by this frightening presence of God. And this is the problem of Leviticus. Not a problem. This is the concern of Leviticus. How can the presence of a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? How can God, who is holy, dwell with sinners like us? Well, when we come to Matthew chapter 1, are we to understand God with as being something frightening or as being a blessing? Because it can be both. Well, here it's clearly a blessing, isn't it? It is a promise. It is a gift that this child who has come is to be, or who will come, is to be Emmanuel. But how is it that God's presence is a blessing in this child? There are two ways that we could understand what Matthew is saying here. God being with us as a blessing. One, we could take that to mean that God is on our side. That he's not against us, but he is with us. He's for us. And there are places in Scripture where we see the reality of that idea. Think, for example, back to 2 Kings chapter 6. You remember what happened there? The prophet Elisha. He is being sought by the king of Syria. And the king of Syria sends his army to where Elisha is at. And Elisha's servant goes out one morning and sees that the city is surrounded. And he is terrified. And what does Elisha say? Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was a presence of the heavenly host that was there that the servant of Elisha did not did not comprehend, was not aware of. But Elisha said, prayed, Lord, open his eyes. In effect, help him to see that you are on our side. Moreover, think about Romans chapter 8, a passage that we go to from time to time. Remember what Paul writes there? If God is for us, if God is on our side, who can be against us? What a glorious blessing. What a glorious promise for those who are in Christ. And so there is a sense in which God being with us means that he is on our side. But friends, there's much more than that. There is much more than that because just going back to these Two instances that we've thought of, particularly in 2 Kings chapter 6. What does Elisha pray? He prays that his servant's eyes would be opened so that he would see what? Not that he would see just that God is on their side, but that he would see that they are not alone, that there is a presence with them. God is 
on their side, but he is on their side and present with them. This is the other way to understand what Matthew means when he says God with us. God is not just on our side, but he is in our midst, in our company, present with us. And friends, this is the hope of the entire Bible. Think back to Moses as he sits there in the wake of that golden calf incident and God's threatening to wipe out his people. What does Moses pray in Exodus chapter 33? Later you can read Exodus 33, 12 and following if you'd like. But specifically in verse 15, Moses said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses knew that, his, that the people of God needed the presence of God to go with them. Moreover, when they enter into the promised land, Moses passes away and Joshua is taking the mantle. What is the promise that God makes to Joshua? No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The promise of God's presence was a past blessing to God's people. But the promise of God's presence is also a future blessing. It is a future promise. And for those of us whose hope is in Christ, this is our future promise. Our future promise is not to dance on the clouds. Our future promise is not to play 18 holes as often, as long as we would like. Or really, if you're playing 18 holes, as short as you would like, right? The hope of the believer is to be in the presence of God. This is the promise. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The promise, the hope of the presence of God and being in the presence of God forever. This is our hope in Christ. This is our confidence in Christ. This is our hope, our confidence, when we breathe our last breath in this life, if our trust is in Christ. Because what does Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is our future hope, the blessing of God's promise. But the presence of God is also the gift of God in Jesus. The gift of God in Jesus. In John 1.14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Levitical language. He tented or tabernacled among us in the Incarnation. 
This child is God with us. And this is significant for Matthew, for the followers of Jesus to understand that this child is God with us because what are the very last words of this gospel? What are the very last words that Matthew records? Jesus tells his disciples, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. The beginning of this gospel gives a promise. This child is God with us. The gospel closes with the promise continued. Jesus himself says, I will be with you, that is, my people, until the end of the age. The gift of the promise of God's presence in Christ. God with us. God with us. There in the middle of that transliterated sandwich, if you will. Manu, the pronoun, us. Emmanuel, God with us, or with us, God. This raises a question. Who is God with? Who is God with? It's true that, in a real sense, God demonstrates fatherly kindness to all. Jesus himself states this in Matthew 5, 45. That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God demonstrates fatherly care for all, but he is father in truth. He is truly the father by adoption into his family of whom? Of those who are the people of Christ, of those who have put their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're pointed to this in the Joseph story, are we not? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. The death Burial and resurrection for sinners like us is sufficient for everyone. But it is effectual only for those who know Christ by faith. These are Christ's people. The, this is the us. So that if you're here today and you don't know Christ by faith, the invitation is to come and know the saving work of God in Christ and come enter into, in your experience, this us, this people who has been rescued by the work of Jesus. John MacArthur states this, if we could condense all the truths of Christmas 
into only three words. These three words would be God with us. Friends, if you don't know Christ by faith, Christ has come into the world, taken on human flesh, fully God and fully man, in order to pay the consequence of the sin that our, of the debt, excuse me, that our sin incurred. And you can know the forgiving, saving love of God in Christ if today you will cry out to him by faith. But how do we respond if you're here and you know Christ by faith? How should we respond to the blessing of this promise? That God is with us in Christ. Three things quickly. First, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that we have the gift of God's presence with us by the Holy Spirit. Here, the announcement is made to Joseph, and it is a glorious truth, fulfilling the prophecy given to Isaiah that Jesus would be known as Emmanuel, God with us. But it is striking that what does Jesus say on the night before he was crucified? He told his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. God with us in Christ, but it is to their advantage that he leave them. Why? Why is it to their advantage? Because he is going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. So that if you are Christ by faith, you have the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul can identify believers in Christ as temples of the Holy Spirit, the one in whom, the ones in whom God's presence dwells in a special and unique way. Let us rejoice that God is with us as the people of Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, or closely related, we need to remember the presence of God with us now. We need to remember the presence of God with us now. Christmas can be a hard and tender time for those who have lost loved ones, especially, not only, but especially for those who have lost loved ones in the past calendar year. And they are experiencing their first Christmas without a dear loved one. Friend, if your hope is in Christ, the sorrow, the sorrow doesn't evaporate. The pain does not simply go away. But there is a promise of God's presence with his people, even when the world turns upside down. I've referred to this Psalm many times, and I will, Lord willing, many times again, Psalm 46. God 
is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. But later in that psalm, there is a twice-repeated refrain. Psalm 46, verses 7 and 10. The Lord of hosts is with us. Emmanuel. The Lord of hosts is with us. And if you are Christ's by faith, even and especially in the heartache, God is with you. Lastly, let us rest in the promise of God's future presence. Let us rest in the promise of God's future presence. Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Praise God that in this child, God was with those who saw the child. But praise God that it is not limited to those who saw the child with their own eyes. But God is with us by faith in the one who bore our sin and was raised from the dead and promised that he would be with his people by his spirit until the end of the age. Praise God that he is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you again on this Christmas day as we said at the beginning of the service God it's good and joyful for us to be together and to celebrate to worship on this Christmas day but father we're not here because it's Christmas we are here because this is the first day of the week because this is the Lord's day and it is right and good for us to rejoice that the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead. It is good and right for us to rejoice in the fact that he has come to save his people from their sins and that by his resurrection, you declare his sacrifice to be accepted. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for the gift of the promise of being with you you in the future. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know Christ by faith, I pray that today they would call out in repentance and faith and come to know the gift of God with us in Christ. Father, help us who know Christ. Help us to rejoice and rest in these great and precious promises. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.